So the big question is now, what do we do? When I was about 17 years old, I was struggling with many of these questions. I was a teenager in South Florida, and the world was being turned upside down a little faster there than elsewhere. It was a giant laboratory, Southern California like, uh, and, and Southern Florida, very similar in the fact that uh, just about all the social change was happening there, partially because the population was absolutely exploding, doubling and doubling every decade. And so you were just lacking a lot of the stability you had elsewhere. But I also had the world change on me. I went from having, I was born in Lakeland, Florida, central part of the state. All my teachers in the public school were basically Sunday school teachers at church. So there was no dissonance between what I heard at home, what I heard at church, what I heard at school. When I went to high school in South Florida, uh, I had some atheist teachers who rather aggressively pressed me on theism. And uh, I had been raised in a church, raised by Christian parents, but I was ill-equipped to answer these questions, and I was drowning and looking for help. Thankfully, the Lord got me help. I'm, I'm very, very thankful. And when the Lord brings you help in that kind of situation, and you're 16, 17, 18 years old, you really honor that help. And uh, that help came to me from a Presbyterian pastor whose name was Jim Kennedy, D. James Kennedy, who's pastor right down the street. And, uh, and he believed in apologetics. He had staff members uh, you know, who were involved in apologetics and had just graduated one from Westminster Seminary with a degree in apologetics. It was the first person I started asking these questions, and he was invigorated by the questions, not scared by them. But one of the men I got introduced to at the time, and I mean introduced to him in person, in all of his eccentricities, including his dress, was Francis Schaeffer. And uh, he was dressed like a Swiss mountain man. Uh, and uh, I was in South Florida, let's just say, it, it, he stood out. Uh, and when I met him, I didn't know really who I was meeting, but he would have a vast impact on my life. In 1977, uh, 78, he, he, he wrote a book entitled, How Shall We Now Live? Which I thought was the strangest title. It didn't sound like good English. Uh, of course, it comes in the Old Testament. And the question is, how are we going to live now? And he was the first person that I encountered who seriously told Christians that we had to think soberly about the culture. We had to understand what was going on. Worldview analysis, that's, uh, that, that was where I was introduced to it. And the boldness of the fact that the Bible speaks to everything. And uh, that, that Christians are given in Scripture a worldview that is capable of addressing everything from the vantage point of God's gift of revelation to us. And uh, so I went from insecurity, confronted by atheist teachers, thinking, I don't have an answer to their questions, to the opposite within a short amount of time where I recognized I can take any question they address to me. I, and, and, and if I don't know the answer, I know where I can go find people who will know the answer. And Christians have thought about this for a long time. It was very reassuring to me to find out that the Christian church has been struggling with these issues and answering these questions and trying to think rightly according to Scripture for 2,000 years. That was an enormous encouragement. But the question's the same. How shall we live now? What are we going to do now? Uh, aftermath's a good way to put it. Okay, so what now? Well, I want us to turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 22. Now, this is the word of the Lord, which means it is the word of the Lord eternally. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will endure forever. But we also know that there are certain texts that at certain moments in, in church history 
have just leapt out in their urgency, in their powerfulness, in their correction. So, you think about the Reformation? One of the texts that simply changed everything is Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Now, that, that, that had been the Word of God for 1,500 years before Martin Luther understood what it meant, that, but now the righteousness of God is revealed and it's the righteousness of Christ to those who believe and justification by faith alone. Well, similarly, this passage we're about to read has a history in church history that's really important. We begin reading in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34. But when the, the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, where and when? Well, Jesus told this to his disciples as he was being challenged by the Pharisees after he'd silenced the Sadducees. Don't you love that? The Sadducees were the theological liberals of the first century, and the Pharisees were the, the rule keepers, the legalists of the first century. And before we just dismiss them, let's just be intellectually honest and say they both thought they were doing the Lord's work. Uh, the Sadducees thought they were doing the Lord's work by getting rid of doctrines that didn't work anymore. That's the very essence of theological liberalism. So they denied angels. They denied the resurrection. Uh, it just even, even back in the first century, they said we can do without those. The Pharisees believed that they were showing the way of righteousness, the righteousness that they could demonstrate by their obedience to the law. You know that as well. So the Sadducees have been silenced by Jesus. Now the Pharisees put up a lawyer to challenge Jesus, not just to show that they could put Jesus to the test, but in order to show their superiority to the Sadducees. So the lawyer asked a question that he thinks Jesus can't answer. Dangerous proposition. Don't ever ask Jesus a question you think he can't answer. So the question they ask him is, which is the great commandment in the law? And that might not sound like a loaded question. It's a hugely loaded question because it's the question, what does it all come down to? What, what, what is the most fundamental text from which everything else flows? Again, B.B. Warfield answered saying, Genesis 1.1. And in a sense, of course, that's true. But Jesus here, in terms of what it means to know God and to please God, takes it down to the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And Jesus said, you should have known the answer to this question already. You ask me what's the greatest commandment, I'm going to tell you right away, you already know it because it's the most fundamental commandment of Israel. It is, it is so fundamental that it's the single verse in Israel known by a word, Shema, hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. And our first responsibility, the reason for which we were created is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength. Everything follows from that, said Jesus. But then Jesus doesn't skip a beat. He was only asked for one, but he gives them two. And he second, he said, and a second is likened to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the Pharisees could not possibly argue with him about one. But the Pharisees were unquestionably irritated about point two. First of all, 
When Jesus said the first commandment, he went to one of the best known verses in the Old Testament. When he said the second, which is likened to it, he went to one of the least known verses of the Old Testament. Jesus is making a point. You don't love God if you don't love your neighbor. How, how do we know you love God? It's because you love your neighbor. That doesn't mean loving your neighbor is enough to prove your orthodoxy, your, 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 your conversion. It does mean you can't possibly say that you're following God. It's, it's what we call in Christian ethics dispositive. Just loving your neighbor is not enough to indicate you're saved. But not loving your neighbor is enough to demonstrate that you're not. The second is likened to it. The point here is, is that Jesus said there are two commandments to which we are obligated, love of God and love of neighbor. That's easy for us to summarize. And that is the very foundation of our understanding of the Christian responsibility of the culture. You say, what should we do now? Well, it's the same answer given to the disciples in the answer to the Pharisees by Jesus in the first century. We are first of all to love God and secondly to love neighbor. Where's the moment in church history? It's the... It's the end of the 4th and the beginning of the 5th century and the Roman Empire is falling. And in North Africa, it turns out there's a bishop who becomes the most influential theologian in the history of the Christian church. The bishop named Augustine. Some of you would think of him as Augustine. But he would have been called Augustine. And he is looking at the Roman Empire falling. And to the people of his day, that was the aftermath. The aftermath was the victory of Rome's enemies. And, and by the way, that means a bunch of barbarians in terms of their understanding of culture. They saw the fall of the Roman Empire, his believers, as being the end of history, as being the end of the world. And raising the question, what are we going to do now? Because the Roman Empire has secured the borders. The Roman Empire secured the laws. The Roman Empire has secured the culture. The Roman Empire has defined virtue. The Roman Empire has punished vice. What's going to happen now? And Augustine said, well, what's going to happen now is you're going to do what you're supposed to have done when there was a Rome. Love God and love your neighbor. And he described this saying there are two cities. In his great book, The City of God, he said we need to understand there are two cities. There's a heavenly city and an earthly city. And, and the heavenly city is ruled by the love of God, and the earthly city is ruled by the love of man. And his point is that Jesus could have just said, history ends now, right after his ascension to heaven, and not left us in this world. But if he, leaved, he leaves us in this world, if he left us here, then it's for a purpose for his glory. There's a reason why we're here. And Augustine said, our ultimate citizenship, what did the Apostle Paul say? Our citizenship is in heaven. Augustine said, our ultimate citizenship is in the city of God. But for his glory and by his sovereignty, we are right now in the city of man, and it must mean something. And so Augustine said, no matter what happens in the city of man, evidently, here's what we're called to do. Love God and love neighbor. And you say, well, that sounds really simplistic, but that really becomes the foundation of understanding what we do in the culture. We are responsible in the culture. We're not responsible for the culture. We are to be animated by, first of all, love of God in all things, but that leads to, the second is likened to it, that leads to the love of neighbor, which means we contend for what leads to human flourishing. Human flourishing is one of those terms we really can't do without these days because happiness, you don't say human happiness, that's not enough because happiness is, seems so superficial. 
We don't just mean human wealth. We don't just mean human satisfaction. By flourishing, we mean what God gave us in creation to the fullest we can know it in this life. That's what we want people to know. We want them to know human flourishing. Now, here's something that a lot of evangelicals hadn't thought through. So you say, well, our only concern is that they come to know Jesus. That is our ultimate concern, is that they hear the gospel. But we also need to understand that in creation, God made it so that he receives glory and human flourishing is present even where the gospel is not acknowledged. Which is to say, if a Buddhist man marries a Buddhist woman and they have Buddhist children and he feeds those children, that's the glory of God rather than neglecting them. If, that, if, if, if a Hindu husband is faithful to his Hindu wife, then God receives glory from the fact that in creation, which again, we're told in the Old Testament and explicitly in the New Testament, God's moral law is written into creation. And so we should contend, we should be, we should be hopeful that people would do the things that lead to human flourishing, that affirm human dignity, that, 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 that build up respect for fellow human beings. That, that, that bring out respect for the things that are right and w- which mitigate the things that are wrong. We, we, we should contend for those things. And, and this is where Christians often want to short-circuit the process. Because we short-circuit the process by saying that means that the most important thing we do is vote the right way. Now, I want to tell you, that's extremely important. That's a stewardship. That's a rare stewardship in human history. The, uh, the, the franchise, as it's classically constitutionally known, the right to vote, that's an amazing thing. We get a say in the government. That's an amazing... We're, we're very few human beings throughout all of human history have been asked, what do you think? Much less being given a vote. That's important. But going from Matthew 22 immediately to the voting place and skipping everything in between is a huge problem. It's, it's a huge problem. It's a temptation to which evangelicals fell prey in the 1980s, the 1990s, and beyond. When we thought, I say we, meaning just as a, as a movement, if we just vote the right way, the culture will head the right way. It turned out that wasn't true. Now, it didn't mean that the votes weren't important. For one thing, the Christian worldview tells us that every single baby not aborted is an infinite victory. And, and every single child that is fed is, is a is an invaluable, inestimable victory. Every, every marriage that stays together. I mean, in other words, every good thing that happens, even in a Genesis understanding of human of the dominion given to us, every time the right road is built, that's a good thing. Uh, every time the wrong canal is not dug, that's a good thing. You know, every, in other words, they're, they're human flourishing and our honoring of what God has given us and our use of what God has given us, that, that requires us to be involved in politics. There's no way around it. And, and uh, in the new book I'm writing, The Secular Moment, I talk about 14 different temptations. One of them is the Amish temptation. That we, can, we, we can just opt out of this. The problem is not voting is actually a vote. That's the horrible quandary. You can't even resign from this responsibility. It's, it's there, and, and it will always be there. If, 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 if the government says, according to the Constitution, you get to vote, if you vote, that's meaningful. If you don't vote, that's also meaningful. You're just overvaluing every other vote. Anyway, the, the reality is that that really is important, but that can't be where we start. This is where we understand from the Christian worldview, and especially from a biblical theology, that where we start is where the Scripture starts. So, in other words, yes, we believe the law should say that marriage is the union of a man and a woman. 
In fact, we think the law should say marriage is the exclusive union of a man and a woman in covenant fidelity for a lifetime. Till death do they part. But that really doesn't mean a whole lot if the world doesn't see that affirmation of marriage in us. The first place we start is by living out marriage and celebrating marriage and defining marriage right amongst ourselves. And not only that, just in terms of what marriage is and marriage isn't, living out the fullness before the world of what it means to embrace marriage as one of God's greatest gifts to humanity. And with marriage, all the gifts of marriage, which means kids, children, celebrating that, and then raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The cover story of the New York Times Magazine, I'll be talking about that on the briefing as soon as I can get to it. The cover story in the New York Times Magazine is a young man, an 18-year-old boy from uh, North Carolina, a student at UNC Chapel Hill. I meant to bring it with me tonight because that, that's rare media real estate, the cover story in the New York Times Magazine. And the cover story is, Why Are American Teenagers So Anxious? And the, the subheading is about the fact that anxiety, I mean, diagnosed anxiety is now a more prevalent issue among American adolescents than depression. Well, I read the article. I will read it again and mark it up before I talk about it. But here's the interesting thing. You know what seems to be missing is the idea that maybe teenagers without a mother and a father are more prone to depression and anxiety. It's not to say that a child that grows up in a Christian home with a mother and a father will never be, it will, that, that will never happen to them. It's just to say, wouldn't you think that maybe that's a part of the problem where you have a complete breakdown of a marriage culture and you have the breakdown of all the pathologies that come with that? Uh, ever since 1967 in what was called the Moynihan Report by Senator Daniel, well, he wasn't senator then, he was an advisor, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, he, he documented what happens when the family unit and marriage begins to disappear. All kinds of pathologies immediately flow. And that was when the rate of children born out of wedlock was in the, the, the it wasn't yet 10, you know. And in, in, in some neighborhoods, maybe 11. Now you're looking at well over 60% of American children born outside of marriage. In many communities, over 60%. And in some communities, over 90%. And nationwide, for the first time in American history, a majority of babies born outside of marriage. And we can look at that and we still can understand why. But where we, start, where we start faithfulness is here. We start faithfulness in the church, as the church, as the body of Christ, a covenant community, under the lordship of Christ, living this out and, and, and encouraging one another and helping one another and listening to the Word of God together, and living this out. And, and this means, uh, by the way, I was on a plane yesterday coming here, and uh, I sat next to a young woman, and uh, just two seats on our side, there she was, and, uh, you know, it's assigned seats, sat down, and I didn't think she wanted to talk, that was pretty clear. Well, uh, but I, I couldn't help myself. Uh, she had a book, and so I just said, what are you reading? And it was a theological book. And uh, turns out she's a student at the Duke Divinity School. And she said, I'm used to having to explain to people what it means to be religious. I said, you're safe. <laughs> and uh, we, 
we, we talked, and then she, she you know, eventually made a connection and had a very lively conversation. She's incredibly smart, very kind, and, uh, and uh, comes from a wonderful Christian family. And she's at Duke uh, right now doing graduate work. I had an interesting conversation, theology, moral issues, and all the rest. But I asked her, I said, what's the biggest distinction between, because she went to a Christian college, very, very clear, she went to, she went to a very clear Christian college, I said, so what's the difference between the young people, at Duke, undergraduates at Duke now, and the undergraduates at Wheaton? She said, almost all the people who graduate from Wheaton with me are married, and got married almost immediately after they graduated from Wheaton. I said, well, that's certainly my story. My father-in-law said I had to wait till my wife graduated from college, so I, I would have made it minutes. It turned out to be days. But as soon as she graduated, uh, I mean, we got married. And, and marriage isn't on the horizon of the undergraduates that do. Just not a part of the conversation at all, she said. And the expectation is wouldn't possibly get married for him 30 or 35 or something like that. Well, you think about it. She, didn't, she wasn't talking about what I'm talking about, but she was talking about exactly what I'm talking about. In other words, there has to be some ex explanation for why we think marriage is that important that we will honor it such that we say, you shouldn't delay getting married. You shouldn't. And, and if you wait till you're ready to have children, guess what? You are never going to have children. Because after having them, you're going to realize you're not ready uh, to have children. And, uh, but, but by God's grace, I mean, here, here's the amazing thing. The fact that we are here is proof positive that thousands of incompetent generations before us were not as incompetent as they looked. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't be here. But, I mean, there's, there's a, and then we expand it to, uh, to, to being an intentional congregation. It's not just the individual marriages and individual Christians living this out. And by the way, honoring a marriage culture in this respect, honoring creation doesn't mean that everybody gets married. It does mean that marriage is recognized as the norm for most people, as Paul will make clear. But it also means that there are certain persons who are not called to be married, and they are given a gift, a gift to celibacy, which is a gift to the church, but as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, it's for a gospel purpose. It's not, just, it's not just deciding that they're not the marrying kind. It's saying, I can be even more deployed for Christ's purposes than a person who's married. I can be more agile and more mobile than someone who's raising children. So you tell me, as a church, how I can show the glory of God, how God's gifts in me and God's calling can, can maximize what I can do that a married person could not do. And, and that's when the church honors one another. That because if you read 1 Corinthians 7, it is clear that the Apostle Paul actually honors those who are given that gift above those who are married. I understand that. We need to celebrate that. But the point is that we, that we are looking for the maximum deployment to the, God, to the glory of God by every member of this community. And it means we celebrate kids. It means where you find Christians, healthy Christians, you should find wiggling people. You should find people who need to be changed. And you should find people who, you know, stand there and just remind you of the glory of God in every single child. And, and why it's the biblical worldview that tells us that every single child, and, 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 and that means every single child, every single child, every child gifted to us with Down syndrome is to be celebrated, not just accepted, but celebrated as God's gift. Every child regardless of what the world would, would judge as any characteristic or capacity, we celebrate as being an unmitigated good, a picture of the kingdom in a wiggling little person. And, and we celebrate that. We live that out. We make, 
we make priorities and make, live out those priorities because we believe that raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is that important. By the way, one of the scariest things to me about the secularization of the culture is how many Christians have secularized schedules. Because you really find out what they believe about the importance of the church by whether or not they're there. And uh, it's just frightening how many... So I'll just go ahead, I'll step on toes here. How many, how many pastors tell me that they see so many of the families of their church now so less frequently because the kid's on a traveling X team or Y team or something else. Well, again, okay, then don't be surprised when that kid simply hasn't had... I talk about in the briefing that, that report done by a secular scientist, a secular sociologist uh, look, looking at this, asking the question as to why why so many young people are showing up already unbelievers on the college university campus. That means that as much as we want to blame the colleges and universities and they need to be blamed for a lot, you can't blame them for secular kids who show up secular. And what this sociologist is, is more a statistician than anything else. He is not a believer. He says he doesn't have a quote a dog in this fight. What he says is evidently those 18-year-olds lacked what he called robust religious experiences that characterized previous generations of Christians. Well, that's not their fault. That's their parents' fault. But then we also live for our neighbors in a way that perplexes them. We show the love of God in a way that surprises them. And, and yes, we're engaged in these issues, but we never, here's what's really important for us, we can't separate issues from people. Jesus didn't say, the first commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, and as he says here in Matthew, mind. And the second is likened to it, you need to have really good arguments to use with your neighbor. He says, the second is like unto it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. So, how many of your neighbors know you love them even when you disagree with them? Because, look, it's really tough to do this at the national level. It's really hard to do this in the media. I did the Larry King program over 40 times. Every one of them is an argument. Um, and and I'm, I'm never invited on these programs just for, hey, we had the time tonight, let's ask Dr. Mueller what he thinks. Uh, that, that has never happened. It's always, they say you're doing this to the country, what you? and then, you know, this is, okay. Uh, and, and, and that's what builds the, an audience, and that's why people watch television. And that's part of the reason why our cultural conversation is now so difficult. But you know, we're the people who have to develop a different set of moral instincts than moralism would indicate. Because moralism is a false gospel. Moralism is, is our reflex. It comes so easily to Christians to believe that what God wants us to do first and foremost is behave. God does want us to behave. But, of course, the whole point of the Reformation was justification by faith alone. Believing comes before behaving. We want behaving to be obedience to the Christ, now known as Savior. <laughs> Uh, the problem is that American cultural Christianity preached moralism for so long, that's what the society thinks we're all about. And moralism gives you wrong set of influences. So, so what am I talking about? So let's say you're at a Little League game. You're at a Little League game. And, uh, and you're there for your kids or your grandkids. And by the way, having a grandchild is the greatest thing that my wife and I have ever experienced had a dear Southern Baptist lady who was passing me in the escalator at the convention when, Mary, when uh, Katie, our daughter, was first expecting, and uh, her husband, Riley. So I was going down the escalator. She was going up. Nice, wonderful Southern Baptist lady. She turned to me and said, Dr. Bowler, I hear Katie's going to have a baby. I said, yes. She said, being a grandparent is the only thing in my life that's ever delivered on its promises. 
And I thought, well, that's, that's really sweet. And I kind of knew what she meant. But she caught herself when she got to the bottom of the escalator. She turned back and said, oh, Dr. Moeller, set for Jesus, set for Jesus. And so I, <laughs> I had to say, she caught herself. She caught herself. Just wanted to make sure I knew that Jesus came first. Grandchild came later. But uh, I, do, I do understand what that means. Okay, so, because I guarantee if I get to go to his Little League game, I'm going to be there. And he's going to be the best. Uh, <laughs> they better play him. Uh, so, when, w- but when I'm there, so let's say you walk into the Little League game, and, and now... There, there's a lesbian couple. They actually think they're married. And they've got a son who's playing on the team. Moralism and the old cultural Christianity says, well, in order to prove you're a good Christian, you better sit a long way from them. But a gospel instinct, driven by the great commandment, and the second which is likened to it means, no, we go sit next to them. That is a new instinct and intuition that's got to be built within us. We've got to want to be with the people who are our neighbors showing up as exactly who they are. And we're not used to that. To be honest, the intuition built into evangelical Christianity in America is you hang around only with the people who already agree with you, or at least say they agree with you on these moral issues. The right kind of people. And Actually, Jesus got in trouble for hanging around the wrong kind of people. Now, we have to be real careful not to overread that and not to say that Jesus associated with their sin. Abundantly clear that he did not. But the fact is, he said, I have come as a physician for the sick and not for the well. Love of neighbor means we show up not just in the argument. We do show up in the argument. There's an argument to be made, and we, we need to make the argument because public policy affects lives, and those lives are our neighbors, and we care about them. We genuinely believe that what it is, is right and righteous and, and leads to health and is on, in alignment with creation will lead to human flourishing, which is to say we don't believe that legalizing same-sex marriage is going to actually lead to human happiness. We don't. Because our worldview says if it's in violation of God's Word, it can't lead to human happiness. It can only lead to disaster. And the more basic the principle, the more basic the commandment, the more basic the institution, the greater the devastation. You take something as basic as marriage, again, there isn't anything more basic. That's Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. The devastation is going to be massive. But here's where we understand that that means we need to be the people that folks turn to when the false promises turn out to be false. We need to be the people they turn to when they say, you know, this kid of ours who's with yours on the Little League team, we don't know how to deal with this. We, we don't know how to think about this. And not only that, sometimes it comes up in the most unexpected ways. Um, the area around our seminary, especially on the, on the north side, is extremely liberal. The Lord put us in a very beautiful place, a very wealthy community, uh, which means we have a beautiful campus and it's wide open. But uh, just a couple streets over, it's Rainbow City. And uh, I go to a couple of those businesses intentionally. You have to realize that I'm the prince of darkness. So it's like Darth Vader shows up. You know, and... And I've been there for 25 years and dealing with these issues nationally and locally and 
so I'm, I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not trying to hold myself forth as an example. I just want to give a testimony. So I've intentionally gone to a lot of those businesses, bookstores, coffee shops, and others. Whenever I'm in town on a Saturday, I always go by. And uh, I make a point to buy books from an independent bookseller that happens to be just extremely liberal. And the, uh, let's just say alternative lifestyles are all over the place. But uh, um, what meant everything to me is when someone who has just looked the other way every time I've come into that store and has clearly had disdain all over her face and is advertising by the way she dresses and everything else that, uh, that we live in different worlds. When she came up to me and said, my mother has cancer, would you pray for her? That's one of those moments you realize, you say, okay, okay, I, I may one day be able to talk to her about love of God, but at least at this point, love of neighbor is what we can hold on to. And, uh, and, and by the way, she can't be as secular as she thinks she is at this moment because she actually wants me to pray for her mother. Maybe she thinks it's magic on the outside. Maybe she just thinks that, you know, it's a, it's a holy thing. And, and here's someone that might have access in, in terms of a holy way. I don't know all that she's thinking. I hope to one, find out one day in conversation. But in the meantime, I just told her, I asked questions about her mother and in the situation. I'm praying for her mother. Um, we, we just have to reverse the logic. And then we have to know a whole lot more than we know right now. The average Christian just doesn't know enough to be engaged in a meaningful conversation. And let's be, let's be honest to say, most previous generations didn't have to think about these things. So I was just recently talking on the briefing about Attorney General Sessions' reversal of the uh, transgender ruling by the previous administration and uh, in which the, uh, the previous administration had ruled that the Civil Rights Act 1964 included transgender identity. Now, whether or not the government should have X or Y rules on transgender identity is a different thing. The important thing to me, at least to point out honestly, was that in 1964, no one in the House and no one in the Senate would have known what transgender meant. Whether, whatever the law should be, that's an interesting debate to have. You can't take a law written in 1964 and say that's what they meant. They didn't even have the vocabulary for it. It's not intellectually honest. But the reality is that a lot of Christians are stuck in 1964. Even trying to think through these issues, they just don't know enough. So the church has to talk about things we didn't have to talk about before. And, uh, and we have to talk about things that are kind of awkward to talk about. Because this is the kind of stuff that people who like not having to think hard and like not having to talk about icky stuff get really nervous. But we got icky stuff all over the place. We've got to talk about really difficult stuff. Because this is where we are all living. There isn't a family in your church, in any church, that isn't going to be affected by some of these issues related to the gender question and the sexual identity question and the sexual orientation question. And so it's one thing to think, well, if you live in San Francisco, that must be an issue. <laughs> I think you already know that you have to know a whole lot more. And your kids are going to have to know more than you know. Uh, so this is where biblical preaching is more important than ever before. And, and biblical preaching that not only honestly is an exposition of the text, but is a way of diving deeply into biblical theology. Because the younger you are, the closer you live to a coast, the closer you live to a campus, the closer you live to a city, and the younger you are, the more Bible you have got to have in your bloodstream. Or it's simply not going to hold together. And not only that, the thicker the Christianity has to be, and the, the more the more important the congregation has to be. So we've got an enormous challenge. And, and this is where we have to make certain that we're not bitter, we're not angry. 
because it's easy to get that way. We have to make clear that we're not the old guy yelling out at the young folks, get off my lawn, you know, get off my grass, that we can't be. Now, can we feel that way at times? If we're honest, we do feel that way at times. It's impossible. I mean, I have to listen to some arguments. I have to read some stuff every single day. I have to deal with stuff in which I want to say, that's pathetic. Um, and, and not only that, we have people opposing us who are quite venomous in their opposition. And, and not only that, they're fueled by the belief that their position is righteous and that human flourishing is only going to happen if we get silenced or at least safely marginalized. And we've got, we've got a tough road ahead. As I said, we're going to find out where the Christians are. Let me tell you this, we're going to find out where the Christian colleges are when they've got to choose between participating in federal tax programs or state tax programs and holding fast to biblical morality. We're going to find out where, where Christian families are. When, I mean, we, we could end up with situations in which it's very difficult for a Christian, a committed Christian, to become a lawyer or a doctor. You know, in Canada right now, and again, I've talked about this and documented it, there's open discussion in some Canadian medical circles as to whether they should allow students into physician training programs, especially for the MD degree, that will not agree in advance to perform abortions because they say we don't, it's not good stewardship of tax money to invest a medical education in someone who will not perform the full array of medical services. And, uh, and you see the denial of conscience clauses uh, writ large, you know, across, across so many sectors. The American Bar Association has been openly discussing changes in the ethics of the legal profession. They'll make it very, very difficult. Uh, one of the ones, one of the specific changes being contemplated would mean that one cannot be associated with a hate group. This has come up pretty glaringly in judicial qualification questions in the state of California. We have to realize that there are, there are are governmental agencies ready to declare any church that holds the biblical morality a hate group? You see, you can't be a member of the church and be a, uh, be a judge in the state of California. Now again, I don't want to be alarmist. We're not there yet. But this conversation is happening amongst the people who say that's what, the way it should be. So we're watching all these things. It's easy to do. And, th- and then we, we, we deal with it with our own children. We say, why do we have to deal with this? You know, why, why do I have to explain to my 10-year-old what it means that you find two men expressing affection on a park bench when all you meant was to go for a walk. But we're the people who have got to be ready for these conversations. And we're the people that have got to live in the confidence that is Christ. Um, Because if we really believe in the sovereignty of God, and we believe in that sovereignty in a biblical sense, uh, meticulous sovereignty, meticulous providence, then, uh, then we believe God actually will display his glory in his church in this time under these conditions in a way that our responsibility is defined as to finding out what that is and how to live that way, so to show God's glory. There's a reason why we're still, as Augustine said, in the city of man and why we're not already, in, in, in terms of our experience, out of the city of man and entirely in the city of God. It is because God has a purpose. And if God has a purpose, by definition, it's a happy purpose, right? Oh, no, that's the wrong word. It's a joyful purpose. And, uh, and we should find satisfaction in knowing that at the end of the day, we can't hold this together. 
We can't ensure the direction of the culture. We can't, on our own, determine the laws. We have an influence in all these things. We have an influence over even the conversation that takes place in the culture, but in the end of the day, we can't secure it. That's not our job. We're responsible in the culture, not for the culture. And then we just find joy where the Scripture tells us we should find joy. Um, If we find ultimate joy in the political process, then pity on us. Because we're going to find joy followed by an even greater sorrow in short order. Followed by more joy, followed by more sorrow. It's just a pattern that goes on and on and on. But if we find our satisfaction in Christ and in all that Christ has given us, then that can't be taken away. So that should make us happy. You know, I, I like it the way I heard it actually in a political context. And uh, this was said by actually President Reagan in a political context. But I'm going to take it away from the political context and put it into our gospel context. We should be happier losing than they are winning. Uh, we should be happier. Now, again, we should be more joyful losing by the account of how people are keeping score in the culture than the people who think they're winning in the culture are when they think they're winning. Why? Well, it's not because of us. It's because of Christ. And that's the beginning and the end. The first commandment, Jesus said, is that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind. The second is likened to it. We shall love our neighbor as ourselves. That should keep us busy for the rest of our lives. It's been a joy to be with you tonight. I get to shift to talk about what you want to talk about.